It's my fear and my observation that the Christian religion is a threat to existence, a threat to our future, in large part because of our violent history and our refusal to face and address our violent history. Hello, and welcome. You're listening to the podcast where being labeled a heretic is a good thing. We're starting conversations about God, politics, spiritual formation, how we got here, and how we move forward post-evangelicalism. Nothing is off limits in our conversations with scholars, seekers, activists, writers, in our quest to uncover the heart of faith. We are your hosts, Kelly and Gary Allen, and welcome to Holy Heretics. Welcome to the final interview of season two of Holy Heretics podcast. Holy cow, <laughs> it, it's been an incredible journey looking back to our very first episode over a year ago when Melanie and I sat down and tried to figure out microphones and platforms and what we're going to say and how we're going to say it and wondering if anyone would ever listen to the show and since then, we've had tens of thousands of listeners. We've interviewed over 50 guests, and we even have a new co-host, Kelly Lamb, who's joined us for season two. And we are in the process of dreaming about what is next for Holy Heretics. But before we get there, I just wanted to pause and say thank you uh, to you, our loyal listeners, and in particular to our Patreon supporters who make this show a reality because I, I can promise you that without your support, without your kindness, without your financial partnership, we would not exist. We would have had to go ahead and close the door. So what I want to do is just say thank you to each one of you. And I want to do that by mentioning you by name to honor you, uh, to thank you for sharing this space with us. So Rick Barnhill Dilling, Jenna Wolf, my friend Jenny Broadwell, Katie Blackwell, Steve Armfield, Karen Huber, Francis Maxwell, Stan Cunningham, David Miller, Brooke, Nicole Larson, Christina Hahn, Janice Harris, Meshi Michelle, Tina Vanderpool, Anne Ryuta, Julie Borum Pillen, Amanda Jewel Warren, Addie Huizinga, Alexis, Susan Ramishan, Language Guy, whoever Language Guy is, Eugene Kim, John Zidoff, Deb Van Dynan, Lamira Burnett, Kylie McClanahan, Kathleen McClanahan, Brad Nigren, Matt and Megan Mullins, Carly Cloud Floyd, and my friend Ray Cusro. Thank you. Thank you for trusting us with your finances. Uh, thank you for $3 a month, $5 a month, $20 a month. It, it truly does allow us to continue having these conversations. And, and if you haven't joined us yet on Patreon, this is my heartfelt plea for you to do so. We are in a, a critical stage in the development of our show it costs about $400 to produce each episode, 
And sometimes we pull that out of our own pocket and that is honestly just not sustainable to us. So if, if Holy Heretics has made an impact in your life, if um, you enjoy these conversations, we would love for you to become a patron of us. And when you join, you have all kinds of perks. We get together monthly to discuss all things and we would just welcome you to the community. So jump online, sophiasociety.org and sign up for Patreon. All right. We're concluding season two, and I think the biggest question many of us in the deconstruction community are continuing to ask is this, should I stay Christian or not? It's a big question. Should I stay in this movement and carve out a more subversive way of doing it, or would it be better to just throw in the towel altogether and give up on Christianity completely? And to help guide us through that conversation, to help potentially provide an answer to that huge question, we're joined today by public theologian Brian McLaren, whose new book just happens to be called Do I Stay Christian? Brian McLaren is an author, speaker, activist, and public theologian. He's a former college English teacher and pastor who is passionate about advocating for a new kind of Christianity. He was one of the leading members of the emergent church movement. He's a faculty member of the Living School and a podcaster with Learning How to See which are a part of Richard Rohr's Center for Action and Contemplation down in New Mexico. Brian's recent projects include an illustrated children's book called Corey and the Seventh Story and The Galapagos Islands, A Spiritual Journey. So, Brian, we are delighted to talk to you today about staying Christian or ditching it all together. So, welcome to the show. It's an honor to have you. Thanks for having me. So, we talk to the deconstruction community, which is in some point in its infancy, right? I mean, a lot of us have just gotten started on this journey of deconstruction, but but you've been at this for a long time. And I'm not saying that you're old, but I am <laughs> saying that, you know, you have been doing this for decades. You were a member of the emergent church, which I was warned not to be a part of because they were dangerous. Um, I, I'm really curious about your own spiritual journey. What has led you to be at the forerunning of uh, pursuing sort of a faith less traveled throughout your career? Well, uh, boy, it's it, it goes way, way back. And you're, and you're right. I am really old. So I'm <laughs> six, uh, 66 this year. Um, I grew up in a fundamentalist home where uh, literal six-day creation, only men can be in charge, uh, you know, total literalism of every single thing in the Bible. Uh, uh, in fact, I remember hearing sermons that the parable of the Good Samaritan was not a parable. It was a true story because it begins a certain man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho or whatever. <laughs> so that just proved it was not a parable. Right. Uh, so uh, I knew I was in trouble really when I was in uh junior high or middle school, because I loved science. I read a lot of books about science. Evolution made a whole lot of sense to me. And I remember thinking, when I'm 18, I'm going to be out of this religion. It's just not a place I want to be. Plus, I was I came of age during the civil rights era. And 
our, our church never talked about politics, which of course is a political act. But I remember when Dr. King was shot and just to go on with life as if nothing's happening out there in the, in the real world. I remember just feeling strange about that. And uh, it was like going to church was a kind of a little make-believe bubble where the rest of the world didn't exist or wasn't important. So it started early for me, Gary Allen, and um, uh, I ended up having a very powerful spiritual experience in my teenage years, which kept me on the path, but always kept me on the path with this sense that I, I don't totally fit in. I ended up, I was a college English teacher. I ended up helping start a little congregation. Uh, and I ended up leaving teaching, became the the pastor of that congregation. And um, through those years, we just attracted other people with questions and problems. And uh, so this sense that something is amiss in Christian faith has been there really from the beginning with me. A lot of great treasures there, but also this sense that something's wrong. And then I think uh, as you say, back in the in the late '90s, I began writing, and uh, others of us started finding each other. And people referred to that as as the emergent conversation or emerging church conversation. And uh, it's been interesting to watch uh, this this new wave of uh, of people going through a deconstruction process. Uh, and and in some ways, what's happened over the last twenty years is we've watched most sectors of the Christian faith have a continuing kind of decomposition. You know, from the Catholic Church pedophilia scandals to all the megachurch Southern Baptists, all kinds of you know uh, scandals coming out, uh, and then the whole Trump fun- phenomenon and watching white evangelicals line up with Donald Trump and line up against their fellow evangelicals who are black or brown or Asian. You know, all of that I think has added to this sense that, yes, something isn't right. And if we're going to stay Christian, we're going to have to do some rethinking. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and and I want to kind of address that um, because the world is an absolute train wreck right now. Um, I mean, if you think of not only adding on to all the things that you just mentioned, you know, inflation is on the rise, racial tensions, gender injustice, patriarchy. Uh, the former president is under fire for attempting a coup of the United States, climate change, mass shootings. And the sad thing is that the church, at least the white evangelical church, seems to be on the wrong side of of almost every one of these issues. Even even this week, Congressperson Lauren Boebert uh, claimed to a white evangelical audience here in Colorado Springs that if if Jesus would have had an AR fifteen, Rome wouldn't have crucified him. I I don't know if you saw that, but I'm <laughs> I guess I'm I'm at a point, and I've really noticed myself becoming more bitter, more angry, um, a bit beyond frustrated at the current climate of Christianity. And yet, when I listen to you speak, when I read your books, you have an incredible peace and calm about you that that I truly envy. I, I, I tell my wife, there are two people that I long to to become as it relates to my uh, a spiritual maturity, uh, Brian McLaren and Richard Rohr. Uh, no matter what's happening in in the culture, no matter um, what <laughs> Christianity is doing to debase itself, you seem to still have a very gentle, loving, peaceful uh, response. 
how is how have you cultivated that? Because I think for many of us in the deconstruction community, we're just mad. We're angry yeah. that our faith has been been co-opted by individuals who want to use it for power and colonization. So can you speak to maybe that heart issue that that you've been able to foster over the years? Well, the the first thing I'd say is if people are mad, they have good reason to be mad. I'd never want to tell anyone who's mad to, uh, you know, try to suppress that anger. I think anger is for the soul what pain is to the body. You, you put your hand on a hot stove and the pain makes you pull your hand away so that you don't <laughs> incur more tissue damage. And similarly, I think anger is our response to injustice, whether it's against ourselves or someone else. So I, I'm not a, against anger, um, but I think we all know that uh, that if anger simmers into bitterness, it becomes kind of like an acid. Uh, what's the old saying? Um, hate is like swallowing acid or swallowing poison that you wish on your opponent. It, you know, it, it damages you first. And and so when we start to feel like something is going on that's damaging me, that's when I think we have to, s- to sort of step back and 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 shift our focus to say, there's a problem out there that I'm angry about, but there's also a problem in here. And I, of course, can't help but think of Jesus' words uh, when he talked about don't try to take the splinter out of someone else's eye when you have a, a log in your own eye. And so th- that comes for this this time for self-examination. Uh, I'm, I'm deeply honored uh, that you would mention me uh, and Richard Rohr together. And something that Richard and I share is a, a deep love for the contemplative tradition. And, and I think contemplative practice, just living an examined life, living a life where we not only have reactions, but we try to become observant of our reactions so that we don't live out of our reactions. We, we have this, we cultivate a habit of observing our reactions. I, I think that's certainly helped both of us. And, and can I also just say, Gary Allen, that if you are feeling angry and you're aware that you're angry, you're, you're already uh, uh, 10 steps ahead of the game. Uh, the, the people who we really have to worry about are the people who are angry and even hateful. And then the only problem is the guy out there and there's never any ability to have any self-examination. Does that make sense? Yeah, perfect. And you know, it's funny because I feel like I'm I, I'm I'm still living in dualism. I'm still living in um a sense of us versus them even though I've kind of moved beyond fundamentalism, which I think yeah. is still a, a, a you know, uh, the main foundation of fundamentalist Christianity is this yeah. very dualistic worldview. And so I think when I notice that anger, I begin to realize like, oh man, I'm still living a dualistic life and trying to figure out how to transform that. And in in, in your book, you talk about, um, I don't want to kind of spoil it for everyone, but it's the question isn't so much, should I stay Christian or should I not, but how do I do Christianity? And, and I want to kind of come back around to the first and second parts of the book, but the conversation has kind of led us here already. So I'm curious uh, for you, you mentioned some of these kind of practicalities and and ways of being Christian um, that have led you to a transformed life. Can can you speak into some of the 
the practical, the tactical ways in which you have used historic uh, Christian practices and formative practices to form your faith. Because again, for many of us, we we grew up in a very belief-based Christianity. It was all about believing the right things about yes. Jesus and not necessarily doing the things of Jesus, not to mention this this even deeper sort of esoteric work that, that really cultivates the heart. So yeah. what does your Christian faith look like today as it relates to formative practices that, that really do shape your heart, mind, and soul? Well, uh, boy, uh, I, I, I suppose I should say I was first introduced to those kind of contemplative practices. I didn't even know the word contemplative, but it turns out that I had a very good mentor when I was in in my early 20s. Actually, I think I was 19. And he introduced me to journaling. I didn't ever, I hadn't heard of such a thing, uh, but he bought me a little $2 black and white journal from the you know, drugstore. And I, and it explains to me the idea of writing down my prayers and, and writing down reflections and trying to keep in touch with myself. And so, uh, in fact, someday I want to go out and burn them all because I don't feel like those things need to be preserved. But I, I have uh, out of my garage, a, a huge cardboard box full of all the journals that I kept for many, many years. When I became a full-time writer, uh, journaling became a less fulfilling practice. It felt more like work. But what journaling did is, in a sense, it gave me a kind of daily rendezvous w- with getting in touch with myself and with God. Um, C.S. Lewis, I think, I think it was C.S. Lewis, who gets quoted for all kinds of opposite things, but uh, he, I think, was once asked what's the most important conversation you have every day? And of course, everyone expects him to say your conversation with God. He says, no, it's the conversation you have with yourself before you have a conversation with God, because in that conversation with yourself, you decide whether you're going to be honest or not. And I think that's what journaling did. It started cultivating in me a desire and a practice of authenticity and honesty. Um, Obviously, uh, another practice that was inherent in that first encounter uh, with that mentor was the practice of having friends People sometimes call them soul friends with whom I could be honest and and they could be honest with me. I could be honest with them. There were no strings attached, no judgment. Uh, we One of these dear friends used to sign all of his emails FNMW, which meant friends no matter what. Uh, <laughs> I which love that. He he meant literally, you know, if you don't stay a Christian, I'm still your friend no matter what. If you get divorced, I'm still your friend no matter what. If you, you know, whatever whatever changes, I'm still your friend no matter what. And that uh, that's to have a couple of friends like that is incredibly important. And I I realize I've been blessed with friends like that, but I think there are some people who probably at this moment can't think of a friend like that. And I I hope you don't mind me saying this, Gary Allen, but it's one of the reasons I think podcasts like this are so important because there are a lot of people, there's not a single living human being they could have an honest conversation with. Um, But when they listen to you have a conversation with your guests, it's like, ah, you know, I can can imagine a place where people could be uh, honest and, and safe. So, 
those would be a, a couple of those uh, deepest practices. I'll, I'll also say, maybe I could just add two others, one relating to the issue of anger. Um, years ago, while I was still a pastor, I reached a decision and my decision, and some people are going to think this is terrible. Uh, I understand you, you might feel that way. Um, but I, I reached a conclusion that Christians are no better than anybody else <laughs> because I realized that Christians act, present themselves as if they're better than other people and they have theological justifications for being better than other people. But I realized if I kept holding my fellow Christians up to that higher standard, I would be so angry at them. <laughs> so I decided to just let them off that pedestal. They're just like everybody else. Some people lose their temper about traffic, and some people lose their temper about the worship song at, uh, <laughs> at church on Sunday. So uh, one is just, I, I've given up on Christians being better than anybody else. They're not. We're all human beings. And I have enough friends who are Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and Sikhs and Jews and atheists that I know that we human beings are all human beings at the end. So that's another one. And then maybe the last one I'd mention is um, when I'm super, super disappointed in human beings and especially Christian human beings and their institutions, uh, getting out in the wilderness, getting out in nature, observing the tide coming in, watching the water flow, hearing the birds, uh, uh, you know, stake out their territory by their songs. All of these parts of the natural world give to me a different logic that feels more honest and real. And that helps sustain me too. Yeah, I love that. I, I have noticed that as well in terms of just I mean, right now I can hear the birds singing in the background and just being outside is a, is a, is a rooting, if you will, practice. I don't even know if that's a word, but it, it really does kind of root you back in the now and the present and, and into a, I guess a different reality. Um, so I, I want to kind of turn the conversation now, if you don't mind, to your book. Uh, it's your latest book, Do I Stay Christian? A guide for the doubters, the disappointed, and the disillusioned. And as I mentioned earlier, it's it's divided into kind of three main parts. But that the first part is almost an anti-apologetic. It, it's <laughs> it's an it's an anti-apologetic for why, frankly, we shouldn't be Christian. And I think all of us in the deconstruction community is like, yes, you know, there are a myriad of reasons why. Um, I should turn and walk away from this movement. But for you uh, in particular, um, what would be the primary reason that you would just throw up your hands and say, you know what, I'm done. Uh, I'm bailing on Christianity. This is the final straw. I'm out. So in, in your writing, what what kind of came up to you that that really sort of just scratched your desire to just yeah. throw in the towel? Well, as you know, I, I give ten chapters that that are ten reasons why uh, I, th I uh, many people, uh, uh, including myself, have thought about leaving Christianity or have left. Um, if I were to combine them all into one statement, here's what it would be: It's my fear and my observation that the Christian religion is a threat to existence, a threat to our future, in large part because of our violent history 
and our refusal to face and address our violent history. And combine that with the fact that Christians through democracy have control of the most weapons and the most wealth in the world. So when you have people who aren't being honest about their past, aren't facing uh, the, the, the realities about, about even present behavior, and they have an enormous amount of power, um, th- that make, it makes them very, very dangerous. Uh, and, and there's an urge in me, in the second part of the book, I, I have second thoughts about this urge, but I just don't want to be part of something that's causing harm. And um, so that would be, I, I suppose, the the big umbrella reason. So I want I want to kind of follow up with that. Our our last guest was Dr. Miguel Delatora up at um, Iliff uh, Seminary yes. and post liberation theologian. You know, really coming about this from the margins. Um, and he was quite bold to say that he kind of wonders if Christianity just needs to die in order to be reborn. Um, And we see this kind of every 500 years or so in the church where there's a great reformation, there's a great change, there's incredible upheaval. Do you think Christianity needs to die or, or maybe just this version of Christianity that we call white evangelicalism? What's, what's kind of your take on, on, on that? Well, your first, first you've already, uh, kind of given a proviso that I think is really important. I think it's it's another sign for me as a white guy of my racial self-preoccupation. <laughs> if I say, if I assume that white Christianity is representative of all Christianity, I think one of the first things that would be good for us to realize is that there is no such single thing as Christianity. There are many Christianities. There are many kinds of Christianity, and they're often opposites. There are Christians whose faith drives them to help refugees and aliens, and there there are Christians who use their faith to justify slamming the door in the face of refugees and aliens, and and the same with LGBTQ persons and caring for the environment. The Christian faith is well-organized on opposite sides of almost every issue. Um, And uh, so I would certainly agree with Miguel that there are forms of Christianity that either will die or will kill. And, And the the danger of deadly forms of Christianity in the world uh, w- w- will, that could lead to killing by people who feel God is on their side and is telling them to do the killing. You know, yeah, th- those forms of Christianity are not going to help us in, in the future. They- they- they've done too much harm already, and we need to leave them behind. I don't really care what you call it, but the work of religion, I understand, as the work of, of meaning-making, of, of finding meaning for life and cultivating meaning and aliveness and cultivating a sense of connection. That's what religion means, the, that little, those three letters, L-I-G, same root as ligament, reconnecting. So that work of reconnecting us to ourselves and to one another, to our enemies, to the earth itself, and 
and to God, that reconnecting work has to go on no matter how corrupt various forms of religion be uh, become. And then I'd say the same thing. You know, th- there is genius at the center of what, what Jesus did and said. Uh, and uh, even if the Christian religion totally self-destructs, uh, we would be so much worse off if we didn't have that that seed of of great uh, that pearl of great price that seed that could grow into something new and um so uh yeah i i i i really empathize with what miguel miguel said um and and i probably nuanced it a little bit but i understand why he he would say what what he said yeah it's one it's interesting you you address something that I, I will say I feel a bit sheepish about. I haven't given up on Christianity from, from a very cliched perspective. It, it's because I, I can't give up on the historical Jesus. And yeah. that is probably the one thing that has kept me moving toward a, a way of manifesting the, the hands and feet of Christ in a world that is – Really looking at things from from the bottom and looking at things from from the marginalized. So, the 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 second half of your book really kind of talks about why to stay Christian and or why to to continue this movement. So, for you personally, again, um, after all of this, after being called a heretic, after moving away from uh, normative forms of Western Christianity. Why are you still on this path? Why why haven't you given up on on the movement? Um, well, here's the weird thing that's happened to me, Gary Allen. Um, as you know, the first third of the book is do I stay Christian? No. The second third is do I stay Christian? Yes. And I'm not trying to say that everybody should stay Christian. I think there are a lot of people who have valid reasons to leave, and they're leaving actually could play a part in, in needed things happening for them and for Christianity, to tell you the truth. Um, uh, and I think there are valid reasons for people to stay. But then in the third part of the book, I, I basically say, you know, deeper than the question of do I stay Christian is what kind of human being do I want to be, whether I call myself a uh, Christian or not. And, and this is something that really happened to me. Like I felt it as I was writing the book that my frustrations with Christianity I have with virtually every other human organization I'm part of. So for example, uh, I'm an American. When The more I learn about American history, the more disgusted I am with, uh, with it. I exactly. mean, it is, it is a horrible history. So do I want to say, well, then I can't be an American? Well, I'm, I'm not so sure what my options are, and I'm not so sure what good that would do. I could see a person saying to me, you better stay American to keep America from bombing, you know, the, the, dropping nuclear bombs on other parts of the world and, and destroying the world with climate change and so on, right? I, I'm really frustrated as a capitalist. Like, I think capitalism is a super, super effective way of producing wealth, but Unfortunately, most of that wealth goes to a smaller and smaller percentage of people, and it 
produces incredible costs and harm and has no way of dealing with those costs and harm and all the people that it exploits to produce wealth for, for the few. What do I do about that? Do I say, I'm no longer a capitalist? Uh, what does that even mean when you live in an economy like ours? And the fact is, I'm kind of disillusioned with the human species, <laughs> you know, where <laughs> where you and I are having this conversation while hearings are going on about the former president uh, having a coup, uh, uh, planning a coup, and huge percentages of our fellow citizens believe everything that this uh, craven, narcissistic liar says, and and that's some flaw in human logic and and human observation, right? So like I'm pretty disillusioned with the human species. Do I want to say I'm no longer a human being? At some point you realize I am part of all these things. And so my only option, my my option isn't to try to achieve some kind of innocence by escaping it all and and placing myself above it all. I've got to start with who I am, where I am and try to become an agent of and an example of something better. And that's to me where, when I kind of see that really, really big picture, I don't know, it, it, it has this wonderful kind of liberating feeling. I don't know if I, if I could communicate it in the book or in these few minutes, but there is a feeling of liberation by saying, yeah, things are really a mess and I, I better start right now to do what I can to be part of making, making things better. I love that. I mean, it, it's incredibly hopeful. And I think the posture is like, do I stay in the midst of this and try to bring about change or do I retreat, sort of go the monastic route and, you know, tend my soul and tend my own garden? It, it's a, it, it's, it's really a, I, I think a conundrum for, for those of us who are still committed because I, I think you're right. If, if all the authentic followers of Christ left. And, and by that, I mean people who are not trying to be have power over, yeah. people who are nonviolent, people who are truly pursuing the way of love. If we walked out of the church, yeah, my God, I mean, it would, it would get even worse quite quickly. So yeah, I think that's a, a radical call to say, okay, I may not completely fit in here, but I need to stay. Um, but I also might need to find my own little micro community or yes. micro way of doing this in order to sustain me. My goodness, that is so true. Yes. So one last kind of major uh, question here. Um, I'm curious, you you have a chapter uh, discussing rewilding and this notion of sort of rewilding faith. Um what does that term mean to you, uh, and in particular from a from a spiritual perspective? Um, I'm really glad you asked about that because that was one of my favorite chapters to write. Really, um, so I have this theory that I explained at the beginning of the chapter that might sound crazy to people, but I bet if you think about it, you'll see there's something to it. And my theory is that when human beings evolved the capacity for language and our our languages became sophisticated. Language became, in a way, our first uh, alternate reality. It became our first virtual reality. And language, in a sense, becomes more real to us than reality itself. In other words, the, the reality in our heads that is about language becomes more real to us than the real world out there. And 
And one of the things that religion is, Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism, even you know different forms of atheism, any, any, any way of looking at the world is, among other things, a language, a set of words and arrangements of words that help us navigate and, and, and talk about reality. But when the language starts to become a problem, uh, and we we know we need to escape the language, which by the way is what deconstruction means. Deconstruction means let's take apart the words and let's take apart the concepts, and let's let's not just use the words to have arguments. Let's look at the words by which we're having arguments and see what's going on. Right? Um, when the language becomes a problem, we need something that is more powerful than language, and. I think the natural world, we, we, in a sense, to escape from this black hole of words inside of our heads, we need to go out and actually notice trees and rivers and stars and ecosystems and, and, and actually come in contact with that world that has its own reality that can then challenge many of our, our concepts. Now, uh, that doesn't solve the problem alone, but I'm not sure we can solve the problem, a problem that has to do with the words that are mental constructs that are reflective of social constructs. I'm not sure we can solve it without getting outside of ourselves in some way, which by the way, when you look at the story of Jesus goes out into the wilderness for 40 days and even in the midst of his busy life and work, keeps sneaking out before it's light to get some time away from people out in the natural world. Uh, you look at the story of the Buddha who lives in this very bubble-like existence of privilege, and he has to, in a sense, run away and escape from this, uh, this privilege that he has in order to encounter suffering and struggle in the real world. And that leads him to an experience under a tree or sitting under a tree in contemplation. He sees things that he never would have seen if he just stayed in his little court, uh, courtly world of, of privilege. I mean, person after person after person has these kinds of encounters. Um, uh, and, and, and the natural world plays a powerful role. I one other thing I'll say about this uh, is that I think one of the reasons I live near the beach, and one of the reasons people love to come sit on the beach and look out at the water, is that there's a certain kind of logic and rhythm and pattern they see as they look at that simple uh, landscape or waterscape of sky and clouds and water and waves, and. I'm looking out the window right now and I see trees and there's patterns to roots and trunks and branches and twigs and leaves. And those patterns themselves, I think, help us reorient uh, and not just be captive to the complexity of all the words and concepts and arguments racing around inside of our heads. Mm, I love that. I love that. You know, I, I was introduced to the the notion of rewilding through a friend. His name's Roger Tempest, and he is the custodian of the Broughton Hall estate up in Yorkshire, England. It's a 3,000-acre estate that his family was uh, has has been the owners of since William the Conqueror. You know, just wow. crazy, crazy. Um, but he's 
realizing that all the domestication, all the disconnection from the natural world has led this estate to really just become barren, to become fallow, to become um, non-life-giving. And so he's planting a million trees and he's, he's creating corridors for wildlife to come in and he's allowing nature to take its course, just allowing nature to be as opposed to controlling it and domesticating it. And, and I think that you're right. There is an element of uh, parallelism with our spirituality that we have become overly domesticated and, and we've yes. disconnected ourselves from the natural world that I think is, as Thomas Berry said, you know, the natural world creation was God's first word. It's God's yes. first way of being. And and we even find God in the natural world, this incarnationalism. So, yeah, I, I'm fascinated to read more about your perspective on rewilding, because for me, it's a uh, it's a little bit more of a positive spin on deconstruction that yes, it's not yes. just, you know, it's not just let's just burn this shit to the ground. It's like, no. There's a there's a, a a natural way of expressing our faith that that's always been here. We we just may have, you know, not been introduced to it. So thank you for for talking through the rewilding process. It's, it's huge. If folks are interested, I wrote a book called The Galapagos Islands: A Spiritual Journey. That is really the probably the place in print where I've had the chance to indulge myself the most in that in that subject. So uh, folks might be interested in that. Okay, perfect, perfect. All right, so I said that was our last uh, formal question. If you don't mind, we're going to end with like three or four just kind of rapid fire, get to know Brian questions. Would that work for you? That's great. That's great. All right, all right, here we go. Uh, you live in Florida, so besides Ron DeSantis, what's the best part about living in uh, in the, the sunny region? I live at the edge of the Everglades and the 10,000 Islands. So the beauty of the protected uh, lands here is is priceless. Nice. Is that like Alligator Alley area? Because I've driven yeah. through there. Yeah, yeah, right. So I live right at the intersection where the Everglades meet the Gulf of Mexico. And then that is an area called the 10,000 Islands. And you put all of that that. Uh, real estate together. Oh, it's so good that it's been preserved. Obviously, everything's being harmed by human beings through climate change and roads and uh, uh, water management problems and all the rest. But um, but just to have a, some few places in Florida that haven't been turned into a strip mall or a theme park is is a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> all right, next question. Um, who's your favorite author and why? Oh, I, you know, I was a lit major. I love to read. Uh, Walker Percy was my great love in my uh, education. I I wrote my thesis on him, a a Catholic novelist. Um, But if I were to just say a book that I've read in the last year that I fell in love with, it was Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. What a beautiful, amazing book. And if I were to pick a novel, oh my goodness, uh, the novel, The Overstory, is one of the best novels I've read in my adult life. Who who wrote that? Uh, oh, my goodness. I'm just forgetting the author. Let me pull it up real quick. <laughs> no worries. The Overstory. I've never heard of it. Uh, uh, Richard Powers. Richard okay. Powers. Perfect. All right. Next, uh, next question. If you could get on a plane right now, go anywhere in the world, where would you go and why? 
well, I get on planes way too much. So my first thought is I'd rather just stay here. <laughs> but um, if I were to go someplace I've always wanted to go, I've never been to India and I'd love to, I'd love to spend some time in India. Perfect. Perfect. All right. Last question. Uh, what's the best meal you ever had? Oh my goodness. Um, I have a friend who lives in Australia. His name is Fuzz Kitto. And Fuzz was is an incredible chef. And he was visiting us once and he made a seafood gumbo or a seafood stew. And I remember at the end of that meal thinking, this is the best meal I ever had. So that would be it. Awesome. I love it. Well, Brian, I... Uh, Thank you so much for for being on our show. Um, you are one of my spiritual heroes, and and I think for many of us, you have not only carved out a way of being Christian that is radically subversive to uh, normative Christianity, but but it's how you've done it that is really impactful. Um, it's one. It's one thing to sort of, yay, we believe the right things and we're moving in this direction. And it's quite another to continue to be kind, to be humble, to be compassionate, even for the communities that we've left behind. So I just want to formally thank you for being a model for all of us, for for walking the way, for talking the way, and for, for doing it in in a way that is transformative itself. So it's been a privilege to talk to you. Thank you for uh, the new book. And uh, we'll put uh, a link to that in the show notes for, for individuals who want to know more about you and your ongoing work and writings. Where can we uh, find you online? Uh, it, my website is brianmclaren.net, B-R-I-A-N-M-C-L-A-R-E-N.net, and they'll find links to social media and all the rest. And Gary Allen, let me just also say uh, thank you for doing this podcast um, and uh, for all the folks who listen who are choosing honesty and authenticity and integrity over just going with the flow. Um, I know this process is hard, but uh, thanks for doing it. A lot depends on it and uh, keep up the great work. Thanks, Brian. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for joining us. This episode was produced by the Sophia Society and written by Kelly Lamb and Gary Allen Taylor. Music is by Faith and Foxholes. If you want more resources to help your spiritual formation and your reconstruction journey, head to sophiasociety.org for articles, online courses, our free ebook, and don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. See you next time.